This is the 26th three-month course, which as I was counting up the years this afternoon was totally amazing to me. This has been going on for that long, that people have been gathering to do this kind of practice for so many years. I'd like to introduce um, my colleagues who are present this evening, uh, Carol Wilson, who's on my right, and Myoshin Kelly on my left. Um, We'll be joined, of course, by uh, Michelle McDonald-Smith and Steve Smith. Um, They're recovering a little bit from jet lag tonight, but they'll be here. Something quite special happens at IMS, you know, at the beginning of a three-month retreat. Uh, Throughout the year, as you know, there's a whole schedule of 10-day retreats or even three-week retreats. But every fall, people come together to undertake such a beautiful way of practicing. I get so inspired by everyone joining in together. Over these last 26 years, we've learned a little better how to do this. When we first started, first one was in 1975 in Bucksport, Maine, before we had IMS. Jack Cornfield and Sharon and myself had been going around teaching short courses you know, throughout the year. And we had this brainstorm, how would it be to have a three-month retreat? You know, much the way we practiced in India for more extended times. So we found this place in Bucksport, Maine. It was a monastery. There was no orientation days at the beginning. There was no integration week at the end. It's like people came that night, they went into silence for three months. The course ended, they left. <laughs> of course, we were kept getting reports in the following weeks of casualties all up and down the East Coast <laughs> as people try to find their way back into the world. So slowly we're figuring out you know, how really to do this well. These first two days, as you've probably seen on the schedule, are days for settling in. And we found it very helpful to just come and be here for a day or two doing some sitting, taking care of business, helping get the center organized. It's a way of actually getting here, of landing after the busyness of all the preparations and the hecticness of traveling. It's a chance for you to also connect with each other somewhat. This is a community of people that you're going to be living with in silence, and also in great intimacy with. There's a tremendous closeness that comes about from people practicing together. So to have a few days before we go into the silence, just if not to get to know everyone, at least to make some kind of personal connections. And so we take these couple of days to do this, to settle in, so that by Friday night, when we formally begin the retreat with the refuges and the precepts, 
we've really created a container. We've created an entree into a sacred space. What is it that makes a space sacred? Really, it's not obviously the buildings. What makes a space sacred is the activity that's undertaken within it. What we do here during this time, and especially during this retreat, we really undertake the work of liberation, the practice of liberation. And then all of the compassionate action, the compassionate activity that can flow from that place of freedom. The work we'll do here over these next six weeks or three months is the work of disentangling. One of the great Buddhist texts puzzle is stated, how can we untangle the tangle? How can we disentangle from the very deeply conditioned forces of greed and of hatred and of fear and of ignorance? This is the work that we come together to do. Disentangling from all of those forces that cause suffering in ourselves and cause so much suffering in the world. And it's just incredibly beautiful and inspiring to have a hundred people come together for this length of time to do this work. It's very rare in the world. You probably became cognizant of this when you might have told your family and friends you're going off for six weeks to three months, sit in silence, sit and walk, sit and walk, no talking. Most people probably looked at you (laughs) as if you were a little bit odd. It's not a common cultural value. And yet it's the most important and the most noble thing we can do. So coming together in this way is tremendously, tremendously inspiring for me. But also, as you know, this is not an easy task. This task of liberation, the task of disentangling from all those forces in our own minds that create suffering. There are very strong habits of judging, of comparing, of ill will, of desire, of grasping. There are these very deeply conditioned patterns that we'll be facing very directly. One of the things I appreciate so much about intensive retreat practice is that it's a situation of such great honesty. In sitting here and being here, 
committed to being aware of what's going on in our own minds and our hearts, there's very little distraction. There it is. We see it. And the power of that honesty to illuminate what's there. It takes a very strong commitment. This is not an easy thing to do. It takes a strong commitment to stay there and be with what arises. To keep the fire strong of wakefulness through all the ups and downs of practice. So where does this commitment come from? What energies or strengths can we draw on to stay committed as you enter into this sacred space of liberation? For me, one of the great sources of energy in practice is the quality of interest. Just what is it that's happening in any moment? When I'm suffering, what is the cause of that suffering? How am I getting caught? How am I getting hooked? What is the nature of my experience? And bringing that interest actually fuels the effort of being awake. Because it's not dependent on things being a certain way. We can bring interest to whatever is arising. And this is our practice to learn how to do that. In the course of the next weeks, whether you're here for six weeks or three months, there will be many surprises. If you think that you know what's going to happen, forget it. (laughs) The unfolding of practice, the unfolding of the Dharma is this great mystery. And in the course of these weeks, so many different things can arise, so many unexpected things. Sometimes it will be tremendously pleasant and interesting, and you'll feel the energy of inspiration. And at other times it will feel awful. You'll feel depressed and discouraged and bored, and your body will hurt And then again, the energy and the inspiration comes. And we just go through these cycles of pleasant and unpleasant and concentrated and restless. So it's very helpful to know this. For those of you who might have registered for a bliss trip, I think you should go to the office tomorrow. for a refund. (laughs) Because it's not what this practice is about, although sometimes it happens. Sometimes we do have tremendous bliss. But that's not the essence of the Dharma. The essence of the Dharma is freedom. And it means being free in all conditions, in all circumstances, through all the ups and downs, not only of our meditation practice, but of our lives. The basis for this interest in our experience 
for drawing on this quality of interest is the feeling of metta, of loving kindness towards ourselves, towards our minds, our bodies, our experience, the people around us. And it's helpful just to reflect and to remind ourselves to practice coming from this place of basic friendliness. There's one line from an ancient samurai poem that says, I make my mind my friend. That can be your mantra for this retreat. I make my mind my friend, whatever it is that's going on. And if we accomplish nothing else in all of this time, but to make our minds our friend, a great deal would be accomplished. So that's a lot of what we'll be practicing. Learning how to be with the whole range, the ups and downs and the pleasant and the unpleasant and the easy and the difficult. Learning how to hold it all, to be with it all. From this basic place, this basic space of friendliness, of acceptance. Interest, friendliness, acceptance. This is the first basic energy that we'll work with as the foundation. The second that's equally important in holding this great purpose of freedom, this great purpose of liberation, when we have that as the centerpiece of what we're doing, of our intention. The second great quality that's so essential to this, to explore and understand and put into practice, is the quality of renunciation. Now for these three months, it's as if IMS becomes a great meditation monastery, just like the great monasteries that are in Asia where people are coming together to practice liberation. Well, in all of the teachings of the Buddha, in all the ways that monasteries can become great, centered around the understanding of a true renunciation. Liberation is not about getting something And this is so hard to internalize that we're not practicing to get something. That liberation happens through letting go. How much can we let go of rather than what can I get? It's a fundamental reorientation, not only of our society and our culture and our lives in society, it's often a radical reorientation of how we ourselves practice. Because we often bring to practice this strong gaining idea. So we understand, we reflect on renunciation 
this quality of mind that is practicing letting go, letting go of grasping, of clinging, of holding on. There'll be endless opportunities to understand this and to work with it. We can practice renunciation of pleasure as being the guiding principle in our choices. And it so often is the guiding principle. It's as if we make our choices in life and in practice, on retreat. We often make our choices dependent on what will give us the most pleasure. But that is not particularly the path to freedom. Can we reorient our intention so we make our choices based on what is most skillful for us, what's most helpful for us in letting go? It has to do with the external situation you know, of your time here. how you like or you don't like your room or your place in the hall or something or other. Okay, can we just be with that? Can I open to that? Can I let go? Sometimes the food may be great, sometimes it may not be to your liking. Okay, can I let go? I was just telling this story to... uh, the staff the other night when I was meeting with them. It was a story of when I was teaching in Russia. And I had been there a few times, the first time still when it was under communist rule. And at that time, food was in very short supply. There was very little there. And it was hard even to get enough food for the retreat. Well, I had gone back a few times uh, after the fall of communism, and even though it was very expensive, food was then available. And so at that time, the food was pretty good at the retreat. It was like a lot of the food my grandmother used to cook, you know, borscht and stuffed cabbage. And, you know, I was really enjoying it. And then one morning, I come down to breakfast, and for breakfast, there was just this very small plate of coleslaw, that was it. And I looked at this plate of coleslaw. Coleslaw for breakfast. You know, and my mind just started, come on. But there I was, I didn't really have much control over what was served. And it's very interesting for me to watch my little mind trip. You know, there was that first moment of reactivity, you know, and of aversion. And what is this? And then I saw, I noticed what my mind was doing. Then I just kind of settled in. Okay, that's what's being served. And I really started reflecting at that point of people who didn't get anything for breakfast. You know, the level and extent of hunger in the world and monks going out on arms and just taking what's offered. So I started doing all these reflections. And it really brought me back to the moment I got into the coleslaw and it was really pretty good. (laughs) It was just an instance. It was just an instance of watching the mind being caught 
and then the power of renunciation of the habit of one's desire. You know, to the degree that we stay caught or attached to our own preferences and desires and wants, we often come up against situations that don't fulfill them. In a situation like this, where all of one's basic needs are taken care of quite comfortably you know, by the standards of the world, within that there will be times you know, where one's desires are still not met. Okay, can we drop down? Can we feel? Feel our reactions, not suppressing it. It's not pretending that you know, we're delighted. But can we just drop down, see what's happening, and enjoy the taste, the freedom, the ease of that moment of renunciation, of being with what is. This tremendous power, this will suffuse your practice and your time here with a tremendous force and energy. This time is a time of a renunciation of family and friends. It's not only renunciation of pleasure as the guiding principle of our lives for this time, but it's also giving up a lot of your familiar supports. You know, in our lives in the world, we have a lot of support systems. Here, it's a renunciation of that. When you read the Buddhist texts, very often it's suggested you know, that you should leave your homeland, leave your country, go off where you're not known. Well, we're doing this in a kind of metaphorical way. You have left your country, you have left your home. Can you come to that inner place of renunciation for this time? It's very helpful if you can feel that space of solitude, because there's a power that comes from that. Remember one time I was practicing at uh, the monasteries in Burma, and when I first went there, uh, I started, or I asked to receive the mail, whatever mail came. Well, as I got more into my practice, you know, they, they would deliver these letters and I'd read these letters, and even though there was nothing traumatic in the letters, they were, terrib- they were terribly disturbing because it just generated this whole range of thoughts and feelings about all these people and what I left behind. And, and very soon I decided, I don't want to see the letters. You know, I'd rather protect the space because it's so rare and so precious. This doesn't happen easily to be in a protected environment like this for this purpose. And so I would encourage you, as much as you can, to honor that aspect of the renunciation. Letting go of contact. That's why taking these these couple of days of orientation to take care of business. get, Get things done. So you can really enter fully into the space of silence. There's another kind of renunciation that happens also. 
It's the renunciation of our ideas of ourselves. You know, we have so many ideas or pictures of who we are, so many self-images that we carry around and really become like a prison. We're imprisoned by our own self-concepts. One of the great gifts of silence, of being with being in silence with people, is that we don't have to present ourselves in any particular way. And it's such a relief. We can just drop back. Drop back into the truth, the honesty of the present moment, letting go of self-image. When we do that, Amazing things can be liberated. Just as one little example. When I started my practice, I was in India. And I had a lot, I mean, my mind wandered a lot. I was very restless, lethargic, sloth and torpor. And I just had this image of myself as kind of a slothful yogi. And that's the image that I was carrying and doing battle with. Well, at one point in the summer months, I had gone up to uh, spend the, the summer, which gets very hot on the plains of India, up in Kashmir. We had gone to a place, a few of us, to go up there and practice together. One of my friends who I went with, remember this very clearly, we were up there and one time... We were having dinner or lunch, and he looked at me and he said, you're really an energetic person. And I looked at him like, who are you talking about? (laughs) I'm Mr. Lethargy. (laughs) I'm sloth. (laughs) But then I kind of let us, oh, he thinks I'm an energetic person. Maybe I am an energetic person. (laughs) And all of a sudden I had all this energy (laughs) to practice. It's like I just... The image which had been imprisoning, you know, it's got punctured. And I realized I'd been carrying, carrying this around and it had been influencing the way I was. And it was like, oh, yeah, there is a lot of energy here. And I can bring that to bear. It was such a useful, it was such a useful moment of just cutting through the sense we have of ourselves. And sometimes in very liberating ways. So a few reminders, kind of reflections, which if you can hold them, reflect on them, especially in these first days, they will really be helpful for you as you enter into the retreat. It's just some very basic principles of practice which has tremendous consequences. The first, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's completely natural to go through the swings of being up and down. This is natural. It will inevitably happen. If we know this, then we're not tossed about in reactivity 
through all of these ups and downs. Sometimes happy, sometimes sad, sometimes inspired, sometimes uninspired, sometimes really interested, sometimes bored. Sometimes the body feels great and light and energized, and sometimes it's heavy and painful and dull. And it goes on and on. The changes keep happening. It's all a display of changing conditions. This will happen. If we know this, if we reflect on it, if we remember that this is natural, this is how the practice unfolds, then it becomes easier. We ride the waves. And we're not so tossed about by them. Sort of like the changing weather. We'd be open to all the changes. And even when there are great storms going on, enjoy them. Be interested in them. What's happening? Even when things get difficult, the very intensity of the difficulty can be interesting. If we remember that it's not a mistake, it's not that our practice has suddenly become bad, it's what happens. So that's the first reflection, to know that you'll go through these ups and downs and that it's completely natural. The second is a caution about a very common meditative phenomenon I call it Vipassana brilliance. Because what happens on retreat is that suddenly our minds get very brilliant. We get all these brilliant ideas about things. You know, all solving the problems, our problems in the world or the problems of the world. You know, we get totally immersed in kind of our brilliant ideas. Or we get enormously creative, you know, and all of these tremendously creative projects start to fill our minds. The books we want to write or the projects we want to undertake. When I first started practicing, for some reason, I think it was probably uh, a little prophetic, but I spent weeks or months designing meditation centers in my mind. This is when I was totally new to the practice. I had just gone to India and was just learning to follow my breath. And it just got so absorbing, you know, that I spent endless hours in that. Or we get terribly brilliant and creative in self-analysis, you know, because psychological insights will happen. And sometimes they happen in very profound ways. But instead of letting them surface and come and go, we can get so absorbed and so carried away by them, by the lucidity of our own minds. All of this is a trap. There's one mantra which is very helpful here, which I hope you all, this is one of many mantras which I'll offer to you during this retreat, you know, at strategic times. In the context of meditation practice, not much is worth thinking about. In fact, very little is worth thinking about. Maybe a few well-timed reflections 
on renunciation or impermanence. But that's it. So beware. Beware of the creative brilliance of your mind, which will manifest and seduce you as you begin sitting. It's coming to trust that insight and wisdom is intuitive. In meditation practice, it's intuitive wisdom. It's not deductive wisdom. It's not something we have to think out. We practice being aware. We practice being wakeful. Just moment to moment, we're present. And in that wakefulness, suddenly and wordlessly, we see what we haven't seen before. We open to new levels of experience. It's not thinking about it. It's simply being there and experiencing it. Our relationship to experience begins to change. And we begin to have the insight that the content of our experience is much less important than how we're relating to it because that's where the freedom is. In the context of meditation practice, nothing much is worth thinking about. So when I say this, I don't mean to imply that you shouldn't have any thoughts. If you were really good yogis, you would not have thoughts. Wrong. There'll be plenty of thoughts. They'll keep coming. The question is, do we get seduced by them over and over again, thinking they're important? Or do we understand nothing much is worth thinking about So we notice the thoughts are there, we renounce our interest in them, we come back to the moment. This setting of intention can be very, very helpful. It really becomes the basis for deepening concentration, deepening wisdom. And something quite amazing happens. We go from our individual stories and our personal histories and all the stuff that we've come to, you know, in coming, in coming here, slowly we emerge from the morass of our personal history and we enter into a much more universal experience of what's in common, the universality of the Dharma. So, in these next couple of days, they're really geared for you to settle in, both in the material, physical way. Just get settled, get to know one another, perhaps reflect on some of these things, of where our energy, our commitment for practice comes from, the quality of interest, the quality of metta, of friendliness the great power, the liberating power of renunciation. Time to get settled in these days. 
You've probably seen the schedule that's been posted. There's a balance of sitting time, of work time. And the work periods are also really helpful. When the Buddha was talking about the factors of enlightenment, you know, there are seven factors of enlightenment, which we'll undoubtedly talk about in different ways during the retreat. One of them is the wisdom factor. The Buddha talked of how the support for the wisdom factor is cleanliness of environment. That when the environment is clean and neat and in harmony, that supports clarity of mind. So some of the intent behind coming together early and helping you know, during the work periods is to create that kind of environment in which to practice. So it's, it's very helpful, of course, not only for the center, but for you, you know, in your own clarity of understanding. In the schedule, there are times of silence. It would be very important to pay attention to those times of silence. The rhythm in these next two days, times of connecting and talking, times of going into silence, times of talking, of silence. And as you follow that rhythm, by Friday night, there will just be this most graceful entry into the deep silence of the retreat, which is a blessing beyond measure. I have both great sympathetic joy for all of you practicing, and also a little bit of sympathetic envy. (laughs) Because it is such a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. You know, and it's something that is so rare. Obviously, and this is just a reminder, although we take the precepts formally Friday night, everyone here at the center all the time is in the observance of the five precepts. So please take that to heart. You know, what's happening is like this special three-month course consciousness is slowly gathering here at IMS as it does every fall. You know, and this is the 26th, 26th time of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yogis coming together and practicing. It feels to me each year, it feels to me as if the Dharma Deva protectors, you know, whatever whatever Deva beings there are, you know, are the Dharma, great Dharma protectors, come in suffuse this space with energy and with protection and with safety. Dalai Lama summed it up very well. He said, it's as if we all have come together to rest in the lap of the Buddha, to put our heads in the lap of the Buddha. Such a wonderful image. Okay. 
this is our time here together, in the lap of the Buddha, in the practice of liberation. Do you have any questions just in coming here, you know, in beginning this journey? We'll be saying a lot about freedom over these next these next months. Most simply, and this of course will be elaborated in many, many ways. It's really freedom in one way of understanding. It's freedom from all those habits of suffering. I mean, isn't it crazy? To me, it's quite amazing when I watch my mind. You see some energies bring suffering, some bring peace and happiness. It's a no-brainer. <laughs> so why do we often keep choosing that which brings suffering. The force of habit, long-established habit, the power of ignorance, of not seeing what we're doing. You know, and so freedom is just waking up, both to understanding what causes happiness and what causes suffering, and then being wise enough to make the right choices. So it's tremendously exciting just to come face to face with that you know, in a very immediate way. It doesn't happen often. You know, to have an environment where we can do this in an intensive way, moment after moment, this, this is tremendous. Oh, thank you very much. I hope you kind of get settled in tonight. And again, keep in mind, the first few days, you know, there'll be little bumps here and there as you, as you settle in. Um, let's just see if you can relax into the conditions. Uh, you know, and take your time in getting here. Have a good night. For those of you who are not particularly tired, the hall is always open. So you're very welcome just to sit and walk uh, as you like. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.